Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Italy, the city of Bologna, 1980. Those screams are the desperate pleas to get oxygen equipment to the victims of an explosion that has moments earlier torn apart the main railway station at rush hour. I wasn't there, but I remember it all too well. It was the worst atrocity in a period of domestic terrorist attacks in Italy. 85 civilians died. And, 40 years on, you'd have thought that all those responsible for it would have been caught by now, right? There's suspicions that certain people in the government were using the mafia as a sort of bridge to contact terrorist groups. So everything was going on behind the scenes. Four decades on, and no real closure. Then, in early 2021, a story breaks. A story that links one of Italy's most celebrated food critics and restaurant guide authors to that appalling crime. He said, it's incredible to think that a man that I discussed tagliatelle dishes with could have planned the death of 85 people. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, Federico Umberto D'Amato, from spy to murderer to gastronome. I'm Tom Kington. I'm the Italy correspondent at The Times. I'm based in Rome. I've been here for a number of years and currently waiting on the end of the COVID second wave, which may be about to take off again, thanks to the UK variant, which is now seeping down from the Apennine Mountains and is at the gates of Rome now. So it's a bit scary at the moment. But today's episode isn't about COVID. It's about history quite recent history. It's about a man Tom read about in a local paper. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading an Italian newspaper called La Stampa, and I came across a review of a new biography of Federico Umberto D'Amato, who died in 1996. He was a secret policeman. He ran a domestic espionage operation out of Italy's interior ministry in the 60s and 70s. And this book 
called The Untouchable Spy by a very good historian called Giacomo Pacini mentions that D'Amato in his later years became an extremely influential restaurant critic. So while he was still working for the police, he helped launch the Espresso Restaurant Guide. It's about Italy's most influential guide. It comes out every year. I have bought it a number of times. It's still going strong. And I was shocked to read this because it, this was just dropped in this article. And I thought, hang on a minute, what's going on here? This, this, this king of spies was also determining the fate of Italy's restaurants. It's, that's an extraordinary story. So that's what got me onto the, the trail of this guy. One of the biggest elements of the story, and perhaps the most eye-catching, was the possible association of D'Amato with an event in 1980. Can you take us to 1980 and to Bologna and to what happened? In 1980, there was a, a devastating bomb attack on Bologna's train station. 85 people died, over 200 were injured. The bomb was set in the air-conditioned waiting room, which was packed with tourists and travellers at the time because it was very hot. Uh, the blast was so powerful, it brought down a good part of the station itself, damaged a train which was waiting there, and really was a very traumatic event for Italy. The president at the time, Sandro Pertini, who flew in that day by helicopter to inspect the damage and help the wounded, said, I have no words, we're facing the most criminal enterprise that has ever taken place in Italy. So this bomb goes off and 85 people are killed. I imagine there wasn't a warning? None whatsoever. But it did mark a kind of high point in a string of bombings, violent attacks, assassinations and kidnappings, which were all linked in the 60s and 70s and onwards through the 80s to extreme right-wing and extreme left-wing terror groups who terrorised Italy in the so-called Years of Lead. The Years of Lead were a period of Italian history marked by bloodshed and bullets, social and political turmoil that lasted from the late 1960s to the late 1980s. Two years before the Bologna massacre, the far-left group, the Red Brigades, killed a senior politician. They had kidnapped Aldo Moro, who was a, a senior politician, brought Italy to a standstill as the whole nation was trying to find out where this guy was. Turns out he'd been kidnapped and held in Rome. After forcing his car to stop, they killed his five police bodyguards with a hail of submachine gun fire. Moro, the only person in the car not hit by the bullets, was quickly bundled into a getaway car. And uh, eventually killed. So it really was an awful time, just really violent, no holds barred criminal acts by these terror groups on both the left and the right. And... What was the purpose of these attacks, as far as anyone knew? Was there a strategy involved? This was really a reflection of the extreme polarisation of Italian politics. It was the, the normal right-left debate degenerating into violence. And I think that one of the reasons for this was because Italy was on really on the front line in the Cold War. It had a very powerful Communist Party, which was often considered by establishment parties like the Christian Democrats to be in a position perhaps to win a general election. This really scared the Americans who didn't want another domino falling in Europe. So that meant that politics became extreme. It became polarised. There was so much at stake and that led to the violence. And it also led to 
suspicions that shadowy establishment groups were actually funding right-wing terrorists to set bombs. So they could then blame that on the left and deter people from voting communist and would also create a general atmosphere of panic and of fear, which would spur Italians not to choose radical forms of politics. On the other hand, there was also a suspicion that the Soviet Union were funding the communists and possibly also funding far-left groups to push their agenda. So it was a nexus of money and fear and aggression and, and power-seeking. Into this context, there were, weren't there, some rather remarkable secret organisations? There was a famous, notorious Masonic Lodge called P2, which is meant to have had its hand in a lot of this devious activity run by a guy called uh, Licio Gelli, who was suspected of, of funding some of the right-wing terror groups. The mafia was also mixed up in this. There's suspicions that certain people in the government were using the mafia as a sort of bridge to contact terrorist groups. So everything was going on behind the scenes. And to this day, we really still don't know quite what actually happened. There have been plenty of very long court cases about this, parliamentary inquiries, but still so much is unknown. Was anybody at the time ever caught, charged, prosecuted, sent to prison for the Bologna bombing? A number of people from a far-right group called NAR, the Armed Revolutionary Nuclei, were convicted. And this year, we'll see another trial in April where another right-wing terrorist is, is going on trial. Well, they won't be on trial because they're now dead, but Licio Gelli will be accused of having had a direct involvement in the Bologna bombing. Wow. That's, that's quite a development. Not only him, but Armand D'Amato was meant to be in the thick of it as well. And that's why he has suddenly become so important. D'Amato was also a member of P2, the Masonic Lodge, and it's thought that he was channeling money passed to him by Licio Gelli to the Bologna terrorists to fund the attack. Documents will be produced at the trial, which were in the possession of Licio Gelli, which list payments they think went towards the bombers. And the payments were made to a man whose code name was uh, Zaf, Z-A-F-F, which they think is the code name for D'Amato because he was such a big fan of saffron. And saffron in Italian is... Zaffarano. Zaffarano. And his nickname might have been Zaff. And these papers, 40 years after the Bologna bombing, which belong to Licio Gelli, this big wig at the P2 Masonic Lodge. Correct. They've been around for a while, the documents, but it's the first time that magistrates have, have studied them and, and linked them to the Bologna attack. It's absolutely incredible. OK, let's, let's talk properly about Federico Umberto D'Amato. What, as far as we know, were his origins and where does he come from? He was a young police official working in Rome, and at the end of the war, he was recruited by the Americans who needed to hunt down Nazis. And he was very, very useful to them. He proved to be a very good agent. He knew his way around Rome. He knew lots of people. And he was very good at building dossiers, which proved to be very useful to him later in life when he was allegedly not beyond a, a bit of blackmail. So he knew people's secrets. He then became quite a big deal at the Italian Interior Ministry, where as the Cold War got underway, 
He was in charge of keeping an eye on the communists. He had quite highly placed informants within the Italian Communist Party and uh, tended to wine and dine diplomats, particularly Russian diplomats, with the aim of perhaps turning them into people who could spy on their own Russian masters for Italy. So he moved on from being a Nazi hunter for the Americans to being a communist hunter, essentially, for the Italians. As far as we can tell, what kind of a man was he? I mean, in the first place, what does he look like? I've seen photos of him when he was an older guy. Uh, He was a corpulent, rather well-fed man, as befits his love of food. He was a guy who could kill you with a smile because he was very subtle about his use of his great power. But people knew that, and, and they were quite wary of him. There he is, whining and dining these diplomats, and he's now a communist hunter in the Interior Ministry. Where does he go on from there? The accusation is that beyond tracking communists... He started getting involved in the business of framing them, making life hard for them, which takes us back to the allegations of Italian officials at the time paying right-wing terrorists to mount attacks which could then be blamed on the left. Now, that came to a head in 1974 when he was in charge of his little spying department at the Interior Ministry. And he was suspected of having taken a role in a bomb attack in Brescia that year, which killed eight. And I think that proved too much for uh, people within the Italian government. At that point, he was dispatched in a sideways promotion to go off and run Italy's border police, which he did until 1984 when he retired. Just to be clear about this, when people make accusations like this about somebody like D'Amato, with what certainty do they make these accusations? With what kind of level of proof? Does it tend to be an advanced gossip? I think it is certainly quite gossipy. I think that at the time, in 1974, when he was shunted out of his department, people had probably formed some quite strong suspicions. Milano, la Banca Nazionale dell'Agricoltura. 10 kg di tritolo hanno seminato la morte e la distruzione. 14 morti e 80 feriti, una strage. Previously, in uh, 1969, when there was a famous bombing at uh, Piazza Fontana in Milan, which killed 17, he was suspected of trying to incriminate anarchists for that attack. And he himself once said, a true spy must always keep one foot within the law and another three outside it but never get caught. So, you know, you say things like that, people are going to think, oh, hang on a minute, we should probably have a look at you. Right. This is a world of agent provocateurs, of people procuring events which are supposed to be the opposite of those that they're supposed to want to happen. And by the time of Bologna, he's now at the border police. He is... But he also had his second career on the go by then, because in 1977, he started writing a very well-regarded restaurant column for an Italian magazine called Espresso. In 1978, he helped the magazine launch the Espresso Restaurant Guide and went on to do that until the 90s. He really was a driving force at at the guide and brought to it a, a great talent and a great passion for food whilst he continued to be, as he was at the time, the the head of the the Italian frontier police force. I don't know whether this sort of thing is usual in Italy, whether it's kind of double career. It's sort of hard to imagine in the context of Britain, really, isn't it? You know, the head of the border force is also the kind of boss of the Michelin guide. And at the same time, 
The allegation is he is also involved in incredibly shadowy actions which have terroristic implications. You could argue that if you're a spy, there's no reason why you shouldn't be passionate about food. A few years ago in Rome, the communications officer for the Italian intelligence services was also writing a restaurant column under a pen name for a Rome newspaper. So it's not a unique case. We'll have more on gourmet spies and this remarkable story with David and Tom Kington, our man in Rome, in just a moment. But I just wanted to tell you about a special offer. To celebrate the beginning of spring, you can save 50% on full digital access to The Times and The Sunday Times for six months and stay well informed on all the latest stories. The offer lasts until the 24th. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash sale forward slash stories of our times and subscribe today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When he was doing his restaurant reviews, what kind of reviews would they be? And the kind of reviews that would have stars at the end? They grade restaurants. They are sometimes quite savage, but there are other restaurants which over the years they have really loved. Sometimes they're, they're blamed for playing favourites. I think D'Amato had very refined tastes. His nicknames, Zafferan or, or Saffron, derived from him claiming that he fell in love with Saffron after tasting it in a clam and pistachio soup that he first ate on the French Riviera. 
And his reviews, you say they were influential and Espresso reviews are influential. Have you ever decided yourself to eat at a restaurant because it was in there? Absolutely. And often I've decided, however, that I'd love to eat in a restaurant that I can't afford to because um, Espresso has told me that it's way above my budget. <laughs> That's always disappointing. Especially disappointing because just possibly those food recommendations might have contained something other than the best rigatoni in Sorrento. When the magistrates were looking into the, the recent accusations, the former colleague at the Espresso Guide of D'Amato's, Eduardo Ruspelli, was called in to see the magistrates. And he told me that he, he went in with some trepidation because he'd, he'd never been summoned by magistrates before. When he got there, there were three of them, and they showed him an old recipe which D'Amato had published. And they questioned him closely about this recipe. And uh, Rispelli got the clear impression that they suspected that it was some form of code, as if D'Amato had published this recipe as a coded message to one of his espionage contacts. That's right. When, when he says, two extra clams, that means meet you by the crossroads. Oh, what a strange world it is. He leaves the border force in 1984, you said? And then what does he do? Well, he continues to be a big deal at the Espresso Guide, about the most influential judge of Italian food for a number of years after that, not without some bumps in the road. He had a falling out with one of the other big critics working on the Guide, a man named Eduardo Raspelli, who worked with him on the launch. Raspelli gave a bad review one year to uh, a restaurant which turned out to be owned by a member of the P2 Masonic Lodge, therefore a chum of D'Amato's, and D'Amato censored the review. Raspelli kicked up a fuss and was promptly sacked, which um, gave you an idea of the kind of power that D'Amato wheeled at the guide. I spoke to Raspelli and he said, it was, it's incredible to think that a man that I discussed tagliatelle dishes with could have planned the death of 85 people. The news of this accusation has been like a punch in the stomach. So a lot of former work colleagues, bit shocked there. As far as most Italians were concerned, before he died in 1996, Amato was a food guy. That's right. There's this connection between him being a, a, a spy and being a restaurant critic. Really, people didn't make that connection. It's a bit of a mystery to me that there has not been more written about this crazy dual role that he had. It's also very strange that he was working for Espresso, which is a, a left-wing publication, and has worked very hard over the years to expose the right-wing deviant criminal terrorist behaviour that uh, D'Amato was reckoned to be backing. Uh, a very strange combination. Takes what is bizarre to the realms beyond, the idea that he makes incredibly popular the food pages of a paper which is trying to expose what people like him had done earlier. You, you read about the case first in, in an Italian newspaper. What's been the tone of the Italian response to the D'Amato revelations? Are they surprised or do they say, well, that's how life was in those days? This trial features Jelly, D'Amato, and this guy, Paolo Bellini, who's still alive and is reckoned to have 
been involved in Bologna. It's a trial which I think people think will be the latest in a series of inquiries which hopefully going to shed light on this very kind of murky period. And I think people will be hoping that it, it just pulls out a few more clues to help build this idea of what really happened. And so many of the people who were involved at the time are still alive. And more to the point, people like D'Amato were suspected of not only being involved in ties to, to the, these acts, but also using their, their office to create false leads. A lot of those false leads have remained sort of there, half-believed, struck down, denied over the years. I think that this trial will be keenly watched to try and just shed a bit more light. Tell me what kind of process this is, because we've used the terms both inquiry and trial, and you've already told us that a lot of the people who were involved are now dead. Exactly what is being decided and by whom? The trial will establish whether Paolo Bellini was involved with the NAR group who have already been convicted. And if it does prove links to Licciogeli, D'Amato and the P2, I think it will revive interest in P2 and perhaps spur more research into what else this lodge might have been involved in. It was a lodge which had many influential Italians as members, including a young Silvio Berlusconi. P2 then, it was very famous back in the 80s and 90s, then people lost sight of it, but it was kind of internationally famous. It was a Masonic lodge full of these characters in the world of politics, run by this chap, Licio Gelli. The accusation now is that this other chap, Bellini, who's still alive, who may have been responsible for the the bomb, was linked to P2, and that's the kind of critical thing. It's just drawing a line between the guys that put that bomb in the waiting room and this Masonic Lodge, which may have organised that payment as part of the strategy of tension because all the senior politicians and police officers and military types who are members would have said a bomb would be a good idea right now because we're worried that the communists are rising in the polls and a tragedy like this will scare people back to voting for the Christian Democrats. It's doubly ironic, isn't it? Because Bologna was the strongest centre of the Communist Party of Italy, I believe. And I think that uh, was no coincidence. Someone with a twisted mind up top will have thought that's the best place to do it. Uh, I imagine there are some people still alive who knew uh, D'Amato and who are his defenders. What are they saying? I spoke to the grandson of a cousin of D'Amato's. This guy is now a lawyer in Rome. He defended D'Amato to the hilt. He said, I knew D'Amato when I was a kid. He was a good friend of my father's. A jolly, witty, reserved man who had absolutely nothing to do with Bologna and should be honoured as a defender of Italian democracy against the Soviet Union during the Cold War. So in other words, he should be remembered for his earlier Cold War work, but the later stuff is all nonsense. He said it's very easy to attack people when they're dead. Which is true. Do you think significant credibility is given to these charges by important Italians, by the kind of commentators who have followed these things through the years? I think there's always a problem that when you have these trials, so many years afterwards, people say, well, we're just raking over the coals. These magistrates have got nothing better to do. Why aren't they prosecuting criminals instead of going after terrorists who are either dead or or long retired? But I think that there are many Italians who would really welcome the light that this may shed on that period. 
And I imagine that would include some of the relatives of those who died. Absolutely. In fact, there's an association of relatives of victims of the Bologna attack who have been instrumental in helping gather some of this evidence. And they are all waiting with bated breath to, to see if they can get what they see as a final dose of justice. I know it's impossible to be precise, but how long do you think this process will take? Any man who predicts the length of an Italian trial is a fool, so I would say a year. If they say, yes, this link has been proven, what implications would that have practically for Italy now? It's got to be a good thing, I think, because Italy ever since then has been scarred by the violence and by the polarisation of politics at the time. That, to this day, has led to the instability of Italian politics, the revolving door governments, even the rise of, of, of populism. That period left with Italians a deep distrust of what they were told by the government, what they were told by the establishment. I see in that the genesis of, of parties like the Five Star Movement, which has always thrived on a distrust of government. Begs the question, will a resolution to this particular case make the distrust any less. I think it will help repair some of the damage done in those years. If more truth comes out, people might feel more prepared to think they can trust what they hear in the news. Tom, one of the things that I certainly have found when discussing things over here, because I'm slightly older than most of our listeners will be, like the period of the Northern Irish Troubles, is the fact that the younger generations really don't understand it, and for them it's history. Is something like that true in Italy as well, or, or does it remain present? I think you're right. I, I think that there will be a current generation of people here in Italy who will think, Bologna what? It's a different era for them. So you have a generation in Italy who are, are kind of detached from politics, and they don't know why. And so maybe if they're told, it might help them find some kind of uh, resolution. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. My guest today was Italy correspondent for The Times, Tom Kington. You can read more of Tom's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were Oliver Adamson and Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Poppy Damon and sound design was by Carla Patella. Now, if you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.